Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the Executive Director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nouwen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry Nouwen to audiences around the world. Each week we endeavor to bring you a new interview with someone who, like Henry Nouwen, is thoughtfully and freshly exploring the concerns and issues of Christian spirituality today. We invite you to share the daily meditations and these podcasts with your friends and family. Our core purpose is to share Henry Nouwen's spiritual vision so that people can be transformed by experiencing themselves as God's beloved. Now let me introduce you to my guest today. Cole Arthur Riley, the creator of the popular and groundbreaking social media account, Black Liturgies, has just released her first book, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. In this exquisite book, Cole weaves together stories from three generations of her family alongside deeply spiritual contemplative reflections. Krista Tippett, host of On Being, invites us to welcome the rising of Cole Arthur Riley's astonishing voice. As Krista says, this is a gorgeous and muscular work, and I agree. In honesty, I've never read a book like this, and I loved it. When I got to the end, I wanted to go back and start all over again. It is deeply spiritual, poetic, and profound, calling readers to a new contemplative way of being. Cole's insights demand our attention. Cole, welcome to Henry Now and Now and Then. Thank you for having me. Before we discuss the book, may I ask a little bit about Black Liturgies? It's described as a project seeking integration of dignity, lament, rage, justice, and rest. You started Black Liturgies on Instagram in July 2020. Who are you talking to? How many people are listening? I do think when I'm when I'm writing Black liturgies, I'm I'm thinking of of Black people, and I'm speaking primarily to to other Black people. Um, and I really started the the project because I was looking for um, a kind of spiritual space, a spiritual community, even that allowed for Black grief and Black anger and black lament and black joy and um the black body to to exist and and to be taken seriously um and to even be centered you know i'd been involved in liturgical spaces for for years um when i started black liturgies and there's i found so much beauty and healing and and written prayer and a kind of restfulness in written prayer that i wanted to engage but out of my blackness you had described yourself as a liturgist. Um, that preceded this? Were you kind of involved in a traditional church where that was something you were doing? Or is it just that the liturgies that you found in those settings has inspired you? The former. So I, um, I was a, a liturgist with um, past two churches I've attended. Uh, an Episcopal church that I actually worked for was the first place I served as a liturgist and leading prayers of the people, um, which was really beautiful and special. But then in my work with college students, so I began working with college students and um, really leaning more into the writer in me and my work with spiritual formation. And so I would have students write liturgies and practice writing prayers. And I've always been a writer. That's always been the way I've felt most connected with the divine and so 
when it came time to um, try to form a community, I it just made sense. It was going to be about words. It was going to be liturgies for me. Oh, that's that that's lovely. It's interesting because I'm I'm in a way a part of the same kind of a community here in Toronto, and it I I just love it. I love the freshness and the depth of it, and the honesty of it, and and obviously. You have you have seen a need and you're filling it. Can I ask? I was, I think I was hearing that you have over a hundred. How many? How many people are? Is it like one hundred twenty-five thousand or more that are onto this Instagram Black Liturgies? I'm curious. It's 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 a lot. Um, I can't remember the exact <laughs> number. I should should know this. I know that um, we recently hit 140,000. Wow. So it can't be much more than that. So, uh, yeah. But no, that's, that just says how how vibrant it is and how much it is being heard and being valued. Now, Cole, what was the catalyst behind this year Flesh? What, what made you want to shift from creating content on Instagram and elsewhere to writing this book? I think Black Liturgies really opened doors for me in the publishing world. I had a few editors reach out to me and um, like I said, I've always loved writing and, you know, dreamed about sharing my writing in this way and on this level before. So I just jumped at the opportunity, honestly. It, it um, I definitely think I'm a stronger writer than I am liturgist. So um, <laughs> it was really nice to be able to explore that part of me. And, um, you know, I set out to write. I, I didn't really set out. I had thought that I was going to write this, you know, very serious and removed you know, book of Christian contemplation, and and it certainly contains the contemplative, but I quickly realized, you know, that my strengths as a writer are in storytelling, and also I just had these stories from my family that were so alive in me um, at that point that I was just unable to write anything um, but them. I just wasn't able to, to muster up any kind of meaningful thought that wasn't connected to the stories of my father and my grandma and um, some of myself as well. I, I love that part of it. Interestingly enough, my background is that I was a filmmaker and I did mm. 40 mini documentaries. They were half hour long on people's lives and it was called Stories of Our Becoming. And that's immediately as I began reading your book, I went, this is a story of your becoming. And all those mm-hmm. stories of our becoming, they are woven together with our family histories and the people that, in a way, have so shaped who we are. It, it's always been interesting to me that often filmmakers' first films are about their families. You know, they, they go back mm-hmm. because they're trying to, that's what's made them who they are. And they want to tell that story because it's deep in them. So in a way, I, I came to the book and I realized, this is a story of my becoming. It's a story of your becoming, and it's mm-hmm. quite wonderful. And um, I think you honor your grandma and your father so beautifully in the book because they're they're written with love. They're written with great honesty. Uh, at times, it breaks my heart some of the realities that you share, but um, yeah, I see them with the love that you see them. Thank you. Has it lifted something from you to be able to have almost in a sense got that off your chest? I I, I love the way you integrate your uh, reflections and your contemplation and your spirituality with these stories. It's its beautifully woven together. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel this. I, I mean, I feel certainly nervous and a little bit bare anytime you kind of share your stories um, or forms of them. And 
but I also do feel a sense of relief. I feel much more connected to my interior life, more connected to what I believe about the world, what I just don't know about the world. I think writing has a wonderful way of kind of, and maybe all art um, has a wonderful way of just drawing out the truest things and um, really begging you to to tell the truth. So I just had to become honest about a lot and travel to places and my stories that I wouldn't normally go. And so in that sense, I do feel this sense of, well, a deeper sense of connection myself. I loved uh, that you talked to, I mean, you're talking about contemplation, but you're saying, I'm interested in reclaiming a contemplation that's not exclusive to whiteness, intellectualism, ableism, or mere hobby. And as a black woman, I am disinterested in any call to spirituality that divorces my mind from my body, voice, or people. That to me seemed to say where this where you'd chosen to begin and where you'd choose to center the book. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. I mean, I had, um, for so long, I had been really concerned with earning the approval of a lot of um, white intellectual spaces in, in, in academia, especially. And there's this, there was just this desire to prove my intellect in terms of my spirituality, which, um, yeah, I think it's just a really dangerous path to travel, you know. Um, it's one thing to believe that the mind has to do with spirituality, but to have it completely eclipse your your spiritual life is, is really dangerous, I think. And I, I was definitely in those waters for a while. And so this book, I knew, okay, if, if I'm going to talk about spirituality, you know, I can talk about the mind, but I, I can't continue down this road of, you know, divorcing my body from my spirituality, divorcing spirituality from the physical realities. And I, I think good contemplation, you know, wants that for us, of course. You know, it's, it's, it's usually people who are kind of skimming off the top of contemplative, uh, of the contemplative tradition who make it just about the mind. It's interesting because you kind of remind me of Henry Nouwen in that, in that, you know, he kept kind of going up the intellectual ladder. You know, he's teaching at Notre Dame and then at Yale and then at Harvard. And then kind of comes to the conclusion, uh, I'm teaching about this, but I'm not doing it. I'm not living it. And realizing mm-hmm. it was, it, it is, it's an interesting conflict. And it sounds like the, the very one that somehow you, you think if I have that intellectual approval for what I'm doing, it affirms it when in fact... Uh, it actually yeah. puts you on the fringes of, uh, of what you would like to experience and what you really want to find and base your life on. Mm-hmm. Has Henry been an influence to you? I'm curious. Yeah, he, cer- he certainly has. I'm, I've been so moved by Henry now and um, over the years. And I think, you know, I was in the real throes of some unhealthy, I think, Christian spaces. And um, I was reading... Um, I was reading a lot of writers who I assumed, you know, could lead me and form me just because they had written a book, you know, this was in college and Mm -hmm. I was just very naive and I didn't have a kind of strong foundation in any kind of Christian tradition at that point. So I was just kind of going where the wind tossed me. Um, And thank goodness I happened across 
Henry Nowen's work. I, I read the in I read In the Name of Jesus first, um, and I remember thinking how you know deep the language was, but also very simple. You know, he wasn't trying to confuse you. He wasn't trying to make things more elaborate um, or even contentious than they needed to be. Um, and I just found, I was just really drawn to him, you know, that the language that, that he used. So I think he, among others, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Julian of Norwich and Toni Morrison and James Baldwin, like those kinds of writers gave me the courage to kind of interrogate the language I was using about God and to, to, to simplify some of my beliefs and to really pare them back to find what's most true or what I believe to be most true, if that makes sense. Uh, it does. It does make sense. And honestly, that's part of the richness of this book. I love the way you kind of seamlessly weave in your reflections about God into the midst of story. Um, I mean, if you were to see my book right now, it is just it's cut lines on almost every single page because Aww. for me, it was just such a treasure to find some of these things. And they made so much sense in the context that you put them. Uh, and it is really one of the reasons I want to invite our listening audiences to be sure and get this here flesh. You're going to be blessed. <laughs> Honestly, you're going to you're going to be blessed and informed and and what I love is I, I really feel the contemporariness of it, too. I mean, the fact that you're, mm. you know, you are speaking in a way that I've longed to hear somebody speak. One of the things about it is, quite honestly, with all the suffering that comes out in this book in terms of stories that are painful, you know, I, I turn around and say, how can you have faith? But it's there. It's there in a kind of glowing and deep and honest way. And that I really value. And, and you've you found fresh words for it. Thank you. I appreciate that. I love the God that I meet in the pages. Tell me a little bit about who God is for you. You know, oh, this question. Um, yeah, you just made me smile just even hearing that question because it's so difficult Um so difficult for me to answer. I mean, I, I certainly have a relationship to God as, you know, my creator. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm thinking of this James Baldwin quote that has really been centering what I think about God in this season, at least. He says, you know, if, if, if God is to have any validity, um, any usefulness, it's that uh, it will make us freer, more loving, um, more gracious. And, and, and I, I, I love that kind of framing of thinking mm -hmm. about God, you know, um, not in terms of, you know, how he's criticizing me, um, how smart he thinks I am, or, you know, um, yeah, but, but, but more about the, the freedom that I think comes, you know, the freedom that I think comes with God, this kind of opening, of self, um, yeah, this, this entrance into the self, this freedom to, to travel into you and into in, in other people. And um, I know that's all very vague, but I, I'm sure you expected as much. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, I started the book that the first chapter is, um, is on dignity. And I knew that, you know, for all the pain in the book, and for this desire for, for, you know, this 
uh, spiritual liberation, as, as at least that's language I'm using. Um, I wanted to start from a place, this, this origin story of, of God being creator and there being inherent dignity um, and beauty in that. I wanted to begin there because I knew that if I, if I started anywhere else, you know, if I started with, you know, the chapter on lament, you know, you can almost reduce, you can almost reduce an experience to that because it's so uh, emotional. It's so, um, it draws you in, you know? Uh And so, you know, we go there, it's easy to go there, but beginning with dignity, it kind of gives you uh, an appetite, I think, for spiritual liberation when you know that you don't have to live so constricted. Um, Yeah. I'm, I'm actually thinking about Henry, Henry Nowen and, um, how he talks about uh, self-rejection and that being such, that being the most, you know, dangerous thing, even more than popularity and power, you know, and success, the most dangerous is this self-rejection and this feeling that you aren't dignified and that if anyone accuses you or criticizes you, then, then you'll be rejected and it's a rejection. Um, And so I love his reframing of, God as this tender kind of compassionate figure that is is very disinterested in rejection and much more concerned with reminding you that you're beloved. Um, yeah, which is why I wanted to ground the book in that first chapter on dignity. I, I love too that you uh, share with me a God that, that is uh, multiple. There's room for the faces of others. And I think that's something mm-hmm. that you bring to this. It's beautifully stated. Thank you. Wonder. You talk about wonder, and I think that's an interesting thing. You know, it, it's rich. I think awe is an exercise, both a doing and a being. It is a spiritual muscle of our humanity that we can only keep from atrophying if we exercise it habitually. Awe is not a lens through which we see the world, but our soul path to seeing. Mm. I love the fact you you. You know, each chapter heading brings us into something, but I thought the one on awe was wonderful. Yeah, wonder was my favorite. It is my favorite chapter. Um, it. I was just telling my husband that last night. He said, what's your favorite chapter? And I'm like, I know authors aren't supposed to choose, you know, a favorite, but mine is, is definitely <laughs> the chapter on, on wonder um, because I feel it's so playful and um yeah, and maybe it's resisting some of that hyper-intellectualism that I was talking about earlier that I was formed in, you know, this kind of, um, yeah, I just feel like my, my feel my inner, I feel my soul kind of relaxing, you know, relaxing back in the chair of it. And maybe that was how I experienced the writing as well. But mm. I, I, I do, I think, you know, we, we have to, and I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not the first to say this, we have to um, get used to, to being people of wonder and to practicing wonder habitually, you know, the violence of the world, the traumas of the world, you know, with how much access we have, um, especially through social media in our current times, with how much access and immediacy, um, the immediacy of that access we have to every trauma and every terror, you know, um, I think we can only survive, you know, we, we can only really survive if wonder is practiced if beauty is practiced as a habit it needs that kind of um habitual resistance um if that makes sense and i think most of the time i'm looking around at 
at the world. I'm staring at a tree in my corner right now. And, you know, I've stared at this tree every day for, you know, <laughs> three years. But what does it mean to try to, to really see it today and see how the light is falling on it and the, the shadow that the curtain is, is leaving on it? And to, to really have those kind of mundane moments of beauty prepares me, I think, to encounter the the terrible and the the scary and and the violent even it's kind of building up my inner strength you have a chapter on calling and i was so struck by some of the things that you wrote obviously you've already mentioned james baldwin was a really important influence you say the first time i picked up james baldwin i finally saw myself it occurred to me that i could be an activist from my own source of power words and then it goes on to say, if writing is a calling, I have a responsibility to demand justice in my writing as much as in the streets. I just thought, wow, it's right in the heart of the book, by the way. It's right kind of in the middle. And I think, <laughs> I think that's who you are. I mean, that's probably what uh, I found so striking in the book. You are uh, an activist in this book in a wonderful way uh, and an activist for the spiritual concerns of the world. You can't be spiritual and and uh, ignore pain and justify injustice. You can't. Mm-hmm. That's what I found in your pages here. Thank you. Yeah, I think, you know, so, so many of us are trying to force ourselves into these very particular molds of justice seekers and what we think, you know, activists should look like. And I, I've, I've just been so hard on myself over the years of, you know, am I doing enough? And, and James Baldwin had those, those same fears, those same insecurities he spoke about very openly in interviews, which kind of just, you know, breaks my heart. And, you know, nowadays we know the, the impact that his, his art had. But yeah, yeah I think, um, to know that it doesn't have to look the same for everyone can be such a relief, can increase accessibility, certainly, to activism and justice issues. And, yeah, um, there's a reason why I started, you know, Black liturgies and centered it around my words. And you don't see my face a whole lot on that page because that's just <laughs> not who I am. You know, it's, it, it's I, I'm, I'm much, uh, if I was going to do it, it was going to be words. Yeah. Well, you you are a force to be reckoned with in these words, and it's for everyone. That's what I'm going to say to everybody. This here flesh is for everyone, and it's really important. Um, you've known a lot of suffering in your life. That that works its way into these pages, too, a lot of physical suffering. Um, mm-hmm. How has that shaped you? Yeah, I, um, I became sick when I was 26. I'm 31 now, so um, before that, I was a very active person I, I was a dancer for the majority of my life trained in ballet and so I've had to have this major shift in how I relate to my body um, in my sickness and I was already a person inclined to just living in my head you know and so mm-hmm. dance was <laughs> the one thing that kind of got me connected to you know my my physical self selfhood and mm-hmm. so it's been a journey to kind of find other ways to connect with my body when it's in so much pain it's easy and I think even understandable for people with chronic illness to want to forget our bodies because that in so many ways can mean relief but it's it's also a very you know dangerous spiritual practice to forget the physical and um 
to not take care of yourself when you forget it's it's you're not inclined to rest as much you're not inclined to eat at normal times when or when you need to eat I should say um and so I think I've had to learn God as this kind of nurturing um almost mother maternal figure who's reminding me, you know, rest, you know, come to me and, and, and lie on my chest. And this kind of, um, yeah, this, Mm. when I think about the maternal nature of, of the divine and, you know, even how Julian of Norwich would describe the maternal nature of God, I think about a connection to the body and a connection to the physical first and this kind of gentle, tender asking us to listen pay attention so I'm learning that I'm learning that I'm 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 learning to be kind and to listen to my body and try my best to befriend a body that's you know hurting more often than it's not you in a way sort of remind me of Henry that was a big struggle for him uh, I think to um acknowledge that part of his being it's it, it is easy to live in your head isn't it and and to live in your spirit and then not care properly for your body and not be able to love it and let others love it too. I think that's that's a really important part of it. Uh, I can't help but wondering if you've always been an old soul, even as I read the book <laughs> and I read your relationship to your grandma and to your, your father. I sense probably that might be who you are. What would you say? You know, I think I... I think so. The more, I mean, the more I think about it, I've never actively thought of myself like that, but um, I mean, my family, they always say I was born a skeptic and uh, that's just like what the Arthurs, that's my story and my family, you know, Cole, is, Nicole was, came out a skeptic. And I think <laughs> that there's something very, um, yeah, very adult about that because, you know, as we age, we become just terrified of, things and I think that's what skepticism usually is just a fear and um, I'm very honest about that in the book I'm I, I'm just a very scared person and in that way yes I think I'm just my soul is just old enough to be scared and understand um, fear <laughs> but but not quite old enough to um to you know you've reached that I think a point in in wisdom and in maturation where you understand the fears and then you're able to exist in them. You're 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 so used to them um, that you're able to you know exist in spite of them. So yeah, I guess I'll say I have a medium old soul. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's an interesting thing going back to the reality that you live with pain. It, it, it is interesting. It's almost like that when you live with pain, you don't say things lightly. You don't mm-hmm. offer up platitudes because pain is pain. There's hard mm-hmm. stuff in this book. There's hard, deep stuff in it. And you live it through with honesty. And I really appreciate that. You write about being raised with the mantra, pay attention. Mm-hmm. How do you think that translates to our current world, both in terms of racial justice and contemplation? Oh, beautiful question. Yeah, that's a beautiful question. So I live in I live in upstate New York now. I was telling you that earlier. And I, I live in a place called Ithaca, New York, and it's known for being this very idyllic, um, yeah, this idyllic, beautiful place with all these waterfalls and, you know, not too much poverty uh, compared to, you know, the country's poverty levels. And so um, I've, I've only lived here for about four or five years. Um, and 
I'm so, it, it can be very easy to, to live sheltered, um, to live sheltered from the pain of the world and to live sheltered from racial injustice. Uh, I mean, my, my husband's white and, and so he can attest to it. He said, you know, if I, if I lived here without you, I don't know how much I would know about, you know, the pain that's happening in this moment. And that really is sad. And so when I think about that phrase that my father kind of drilled into us, pay attention, look up, you know, I think there's something, um, yeah, really beautiful in asking us to, care about more than just our own interior lives you know like care about mm-hmm. the introspective he certainly drew us to those places but also look up and see what's what's happening out there look up past your kind of point of view and um and what is there to engage what is there that can hurt you what is there that needs protection um so yeah I love this question I love thinking about that family mantra in that way and then I also think there's you know there's something about wonder that that phrase makes me think of you know pay attention and just seeing like uh are you looking at the tree are you looking at the tree or are you really being attentive to it and its beauty so I think it yeah it's it's a multi-use mantra for sure can I ask you where the title of the book comes from it's it's it feels blunt to me it says this here flesh it feels almost like there's a nakedness to where does it come from why why that so it's a very, very subtle nod to this um, space that Toni Morrison writes about in Beloved called The Clearing. And um, there's this wonderful scene in, in, in Beloved where Morrison takes us back to a clearing where the matriarch of the family, Baby Stokes, is giving her sermons. Uh, and she's giving this sermon. But before she does, she calls the women to the center well first she calls the children and she says let your let your mother see you dance and then she calls the the men and and she says let your let your wives hear you cry and then she calls the women um to the center and she, you know, she tells the women to cry for the living and the dead just cry and so they have this kind of embodied intergenerational embodied spiritual experience and then they all lie down in the grass and baby thugs give a sermon and she says, in this here place, we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet and grass, love it. And I mean, the her, her sermon goes on past that. And it's this beautiful, um, this beautiful portrait of spirituality. It's, it's absolutely what I want my spiritual life to look like, this embodied, intergenerational, a, a, emotional picture of spirituality that also is asking us to to love ourselves to call ourselves beloved to call every part of our flesh beloved so yes it's a very um gentle nod to that scene and it's interesting it brings me back again to say you and henry would be good friends oh that belovedness that discovery of being beloved was his breakthrough his great honesty about our self-hatred or is being our worst enemy it was his war zone and we have mm-hmm. all of us have some of that within us i think but when you truly discover god really truly loves me you can love others you can see god's love for others unrestrained and uh wild about his about his creation wild about her creation wild about it mm-hmm. all that's that's comes through it's funny at some point um 
and maybe this is going backwards a little bit, but I realize at some point in the book he said, at first you were given the image of a, a white man God. Mm-hmm. And I, I think maybe when, before when I was asking you about what is God like, I, I, what is God like for you now as you think about that? I, I'm sure that must have been mm-hmm. painful. Yeah, it was because, you know, even once I, you know, was finally prepared to contend with the fact that he wasn't, you know, um, white, it was really difficult to kind of rend that image from my mind. You know, when someone said God, when someone said Jesus, he was white and he had blue eyes. That's the image that came into my mind. And it just shows just how deep, you know, these lessons go. And it's, it's, you can't just walk out of the door, right? And and once you realize that it's the wrong door. And so it takes practice, I think, practice of, you know, um, visualizing God in other ways. And um, I, I've just finished reading this really challenging book by a scholar named Christina Cleveland. She wrote a book called God is a Black Woman. And she, um, a very provocative title, she, she travels around to these different Black Madonnas in France. And she tells the story of just kind of um, detaching from this very strict portrait of a white male god in experiencing the divine and, you know, these um, Black Madonnas around France. And it's such, uh, it's, it's a really good book, a really difficult book to read and I think will challenge many of us. Um, but as I was reading, I, I, I realized that it was still very hard for me to picture God, you know, <laughs> looking at anything like <laughs> me. And um, so I was just reminded I need more practice at that, more practice of even trying to experience God in, you know, like I said, in the mundane and in, in beauty in, in general and trying to have some experience of, of God that kind of transcends. Yeah, at least that's what I'm I'm practicing in this season. It's interesting, as I read through your book, and uh, there's wonderful chapters. There's chapters on rage. There's chapters on lament. I think perhaps the lament chapter moved me the most because you tell the story of your grandma. Mm. But there's such honesty in it. And that's one of the reasons I just want to encourage listeners. This is a book that will help you freshly look under the covers a little bit at some of these things that, you know, need to be looked at more carefully and need to be rethought. You've done a good job of it. Thank you. I'm really grateful for for all that you have said and for what you bring. And there's beauty throughout it. All I could think of was it's so rich poetically and it's so profound. It's it's just, um, yes, your gift is words and you are using words uh, as an activist in, in a very powerful and fresh way fresh way for for us to discover the contemplative for the now and that's really i think an amazing gift you're giving us thank you i appreciate that thanks for spending time with me today what a privilege to to have the book and then to get to talk with you and um i look forward to uh doing this again i had the feeling that someday i'll say oh i interviewed her when she came out with your first book <laughs> to me you're a tony morrison you're a you're a james baldwin this is a beautifully written book and it it wow. is a very meaningful and deep book so i'm thankful that uh, you would have this conversation and i'm so thankful that you also know henry that means a lot to all of us <laughs> thank you yes thanks for having me 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I loved Cole Arthur Riley's new book, This Here Flesh. It is so deep and rich spiritually, asking the questions we must ask ourselves. As Cole has written, if we have any interest in representing a liberating spirituality, we must adopt a spiritual psyche whose deepest concern is not enlightenment or education, but doing our best at telling the truth. I'm so grateful for the honest and challenging thinking and writing Cole has done, and I encourage you to get the book, This Here Flesh. For more resources related to this program, click on the links on the podcast page of our website. You'll find links to anything mentioned today, as well as book suggestions. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd be so grateful if you'd take time to give us a review or a thumbs up, or pass this on to your friends and family. Thanks for listening. Until next time.